0: Decoding today, the South African French duo Mike Horn and Cyril Desprez I'm Mathias Dandois, a BMX professional rider, 8 times BMX Flatland World Champion I've been riding for 20 years, traveled to over 80 countries And I'm on the road over 200 days a year I And mean, that's not much compared to one of my guests today Anyways, we already decoded so many inspiring guests. If you have missed the previous episodes with pro athletes like Tom Pagès or Patrick Seabase, make sure to subscribe and listen to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and every other podcast app. We also filmed the podcast and make some awesome vlogs about our trips. You can find them on my YouTube channel. We'll link it all below in the show notes. For today's episode, I met with two absolute legends the South African-French duo Mike Horn and Cyril Desprez. We met up in Chamonix, France, one of the most beautiful mountains out there. Cyril Desprez, I mean, he doesn't need no introduction, he's done 20 Dakar Rally and he's won five of them. For those who don't know, Dakar Rally is the toughest rally on Earth and he's won it five times, come on, that's crazy. And Mike Horn, is a legendary adventurer, he's completed a solo journey around the equator And he became the first person to travel to the North Pole without a dog or motorized support, during winter, in permanent darkness. Mike will come in the second part of the podcast and you should not miss that legend out because he has some really interesting things to say. We talked about so many interesting topics in this podcast. How Cyril worked as a bike mechanic when he was young and what he learned from that time. How he founded his first professional rally selling wine bottle. Yes, he sold for over 15,000 euros worth of wine bottle to fund his his first rally. We also talked about fear, adrenaline and risk in motorsports and how he lost two teammates and friends during the rally and how he fought for them. Mike came in the second part of the podcast. Mike is crazy. I mean, he swam 7,000 kilometers from the south of the Amazon to the Atlantic Ocean. He's telling us how both started to team up for the Dakar Rally. Mike will also tell you how he influenced the German soccer team and the Indian cricket team and made them world champions. Some great advice in there. Guys, you don't want to miss that podcast out. It's a crazy one, one of the best ones so far. Ladies and gentlemen, take your popcorn and enjoy the legend Cyril Desprez and Mike Hall. We are back in the mountain, in Chamonix, France, in the mountain, with a really special guest. He's a true motorsport legend. He won the Dakar five times, all the way from France. My good friend, Cyril Desprez. Thank you for this introduction, uh, uh, Mr. Mathias.
1: I really appreciate it.
0: It's going to be a beautiful uh, podcast about French accent.
1: (laughs) I don't know what you say, a French accent. <laughs> That's my one, huh? sorry. How sick was today, huh? oh man. Uh, I know a bit uh, the mountain because I'm living in the Pyrenees uh, for the last uh, 20 years. But um, yeah, to bring you on this, uh, these big mountains on the Alps, to let you try the
0: mountain uh, ski, it was uh, something special, yeah, definitely. It was insane. So you can watch all the adventures from today on the vlog that just came out with that podcast. It was insane. We went on the mountain with uh, your co-pilot from this year, Dakar, Mike Horn, who's going to join us sooner than later or later than sooner. We never know with Mike. No, no. no. Mike is just uh, the last
1: and the greatest uh, adventurer in the world, uh, let's say. The other adventurer uh, and explorator say that, not only me. It's my co-pilot, my co-driver for the last uh, Dakar it was. Man, this guy, uh, I've been doing everything on Earth, on the sea, on the ocean,
0: in Amazon, everywhere. He's insane. That's going to be so nice to have his, uh, his take on things for sure. But yeah, let's go back to you for a little while. Cyril, totally a motorcycle legend. Uh, do you remember what was your uh, first souvenir on a, a moto or like on, or something with an engine?
1: Well, yeah, uh, it was special because we, we meet a, a girl here in Chamonix, uh, Cathy. His brother was a professional trial rider back in the 80s and he was a French champion uh, doing uh, the world championship also and, and this is where the passion come to me. I start at uh, 13 years old to ride a motorcycle for the first time and as we say, uh, when you love bike, it's forever. What was your first uh, motorcycle? A trial uh, bike? My, my really first one was a Fantic 80, a trial bike, which I bought with the money of my communion. I was uh, 30 years old and uh, it's funny because I have still this uh, bike. I found it back close to Paris and I bought it back and just make it brand new and it's in a special
0: room with some trophy at home and uh, really nice to remember. For oh, so sick and, uh, before winning, uh, five Dakar, it was not necessarily easy for you. Like, I mean, you didn't come pro like this. Uh, you come from a city called Nemours, I think. Yes. In the, yes. like close to Paris. I think you have a background as a bike mechanic. Yeah. What souvenirs do you have from this era?
1: Oh, well, uh, you know, watching all these guys on this uh, region of Fontainebleau or Nemours, exactly, uh, there's a lot of rocks. People are coming from everywhere in the world for climbing uh, these big rocks but also uh, there's a community of uh, trial rider i begin to fall in love uh, of the bikes the motorbike the trial and and uh, when it was time for me to decide uh, uh, what to do during my life i said uh, well repairing bike uh, taking care about bike uh, you know it was uh, i feel that it was my way and uh, I've uh, learned uh, how to become a mechanic during uh, five years working in Paris because if you don't want to repair a moped on the region where I came from and you want to work and find a good job, you have to go to Paris. And this is what I have done. I stayed uh, a few years after my, uh, my studies in a, in a motorcycle shop close to Bastille, you know a little bit of Bastille? Ah, I know
0: a little bit yeah, of yeah, Bastille. Yeah, yeah. This is where I live in Paris. This is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And it's also good remember because it was actually challenge 75, the name of the shop. It was the first off-road shop in Paris. And the shop was open in 1974, the year where I born and a uh, lot of good remember because People are working hard, uh, actually, in in Paris, in in all these big cities. But uh, at that time, many of them wanted to go outside of France and doing some desert race, doing some Dakar, some Tunisia rally, some Morocco rally, you know, for them, it was uh, the escape time of their life. And basically in Paris, they had a shop which can prepare their desert bike.
0: And you were preparing.
1: I was doing it uh, for a few years. And this is where these guys, these clients, after work, uh, coming back to see uh, w- what kind of tire they want to choose, what kind of handlebar they want to choose. And I just learned about Raleigh and Dakar inside Paris uh, in the 11 arrondissement. I never had any idea about desert. This was only uh, stories I hear late
0: on the workshop where when the clients were coming. Wow, that's crazy. You learn about Africa in the least expected place, Paris. Yeah. That's so funny. And uh, school was not really your thing. What did your parents wanted you to do? Or like, did your parents let you do the bike mechanic thing?
1: Yeah, I mean uh, give me a lot of trust. My parents divorced when I was young and then I find this way uh, you know to go in a, in flat out in this direction saying okay, I, this will be my life. I I really feel it and uh, when I, I I found this school uh, to get the titles to have some learning of two wheels uh, mechanic, not car at that time. Yeah, I, I really feel that this is for me. On the first years, uh, I really start to enjoy to go to school. Actually, you know, from uh, five to thirteen, uh, I was not really a good uh, schoolboy. But uh, learning something which uh, passionate give me a, a lot lot of opportunities on the future.
0: That's crazy. It's been a, a common pattern to a lot of athletes that we've been interviewing so far. They kind of had a clear idea really young that what they found. It could be surfing or bikes or snowboarding. What they found was what they wanted to do, like kind of straight away. Where was the moment you thought, that's it, this is what I want to do? The problem is uh, how you can learn to become
1: an athlete. You can know exactly you will be the winner of the Dakar one day. You know, it's impossible. Same for you, I guess. There were no barrier, you know, in front of, of me. And the biggest opportunity was my boss from the shop, motorcycle shop in Paris. He was uh, doing some races, some rally. And in 97, uh, he went to a a rally and broke his shoulder, uh, get back to work. And then uh, he could not take care of the workshop. And from a normal and simple mechanic, I became the uh, workshop responsible of three, four mechanics at that time. I did the job for a few months and the mechanics were uh, older than me. And uh, I was giving the direction, I was giving the job. And my boss really appreciated so much that a few months later, there were another race for him, uh, which was planned, Tunisia Rally 98. But he could not take part. And he said, Cyril, you have done a great job. I can't race, but take my bike, take my tires, take my spare parts, and you just have to pay, it was 1,500 euros and go to race, uh, your first race, you know, your first rally. And it was the beginning of, of the second part of my passion uh, with motorcycle and the passion of the desert came from this, this uh, Tunisia Rally 98.
0: What a sick boss. This yeah. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's crazy how a career can change on a little, a little detail. I mean, he broke his shoulder, so you became the boss mechanic. And then you had the opportunity to go to that rally. Did he know at that time that you had any skills on the motorcycle?
1: No, no. no. I mean, he he was uh, quite pissed because he have done races for 10 years, maybe, not reaching even the top 30, top 35. I went there for the first time and finished 13. And for him... To see me and to give me this opportunity with this bike, a small bike, 400cc Honda. Yeah, it was quite surprised, surprise, you know, of the result. And, and I was not. I mean, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy it so much that I say, oh, that's nice. I mean, I remember exactly one time we were in the south of Tunisia, full of big dunes. And then during the race, the time was was running. It was a special stage. And he was so nice and he was so beautiful that after a few seconds, I, I was not a race and I start again. But thanks to him, thanks. I can't uh, even use some word to tell him uh, what he bring at that time, you know. And I'm in still in contact. I, I was uh, with him a few weeks uh, before uh, it was Dakar 2020 and uh, he was there. Just for enjoying, just for watching. But yeah, we are always in contact.
0: It's, this uh, is awesome. This guy yeah. must be so proud of you. Yeah, and I think this so, is yeah. this is so yeah. cool. Yeah, amazing. So your first rally race, you get thirteenth place, kind of out of the blue. What was your feeling or thinking when you got thirteenth place? Were you like, this is a beginning of something?
1: You know, I start at thirteen as a trail rider because of passion, passion of motorcycle, but competition was not really the most important. The most important at that time, it was how many hours I can spend on my motorcycle per week when my parents agreed or not. And then uh, I was trying to get hours and hours and hours. But suddenly after uh, this rally, I realized that the sports, the competition is inside me. And if I do 13 on my first uh, rally raid, I can do better with a bit of training
0: and, and more knowledge. Of course, because you didn't train much. For no, that.
1: no, no, not at all. I mean, the first time I, I ride a rally bike, it was uh, in between uh, Nation and Bastille, <laughs> you know, in the center of Paris. <laughs> There's not a lot of sand in uh, between Nation no, and Bastille. <laughs> no, no, definitely. But, you know, this is what I had. And, and I really uh, discovered the landscape, the camels, the palm tree, the dunes, everything I discovered inside during, you know, every kilometer was, okay, I need to go fast. I need to find my way to navigate, but also completely new. I only saw these images on TV.
0: Was it your first trip to Africa?
1: It was, it was. First trip out of Europe, basically, you know, I was was not a rich guy coming with a a big box and big bags of money and,
0: and euro or French franc at that time. It was my biggest trip ever. That's crazy. Let's come back to that a little bit because I feel like it's kind of necessary in uh, motor sports. It's money and uh, funding a trip, a race, a rally. Let's take Dakar as an example. You were telling me to fund a car, Dakar trip, that it was between 800,000 and 1 million euro. Yeah. And then if you crash... Uh, on the first uh, thing, that's on the first uh, special, that's that.
1: Yeah, the money is gone, yeah. I mean, Thierry Sabine uh, was a French guy, the guy which uh, invents the race between Paris and Dakar. But he always said that it's a proper race, but for amateurs, where the professionals are allowed to participate. And then, uh, years after years, it starts to be more and more professional. This year was the 42 edition. It's a quite expensive adventure. You can find uh, uh, some small car, some small buggy, you know, for 200,000 euros maybe, but at the level that I, I want to race now, it's really expensive. But back in the days, you know, talking about Dakar, and especially after this first race, I wanted to take part. And it was kind of lucky because I had all 99, I had 12 months to try to find money to take part of my first Dakar. Because after my first race in Tunisia, I said, what is the next step? The next step is try to make the biggest rally ever on the world, the world toughest uh, rally on the on the earth. And... From where I start, do I need to go to the bank? Do I need to go to my parents uh, where I could find this money to get uh,
0: in the race? And at that time, it
1: was 15,000 euros on a motorcycle.
0: So let's bring it back a little bit. Uh, 1999, you are still a bike mechanic at that shop. 15 grand to take part of that it's a lot of money for a bike yeah. uh, mechanic guy on even more in the t- in the year 2000s you know 15 grand was a lot of money back then still is a lot of money it was one one year salary basically you, how did you pull that one off because your first Dakar was 2000 everyone knows that so tell us how did you find 15 grand
1: it was uh, funny and now uh, especially after uh, all my race career uh, it's a funny story but it's a true story uh, we decided to take part of this race with a friend in, uh, in the South of France, which uh, could not find any sponsor. I didn't know how to find sponsors, but uh, he had a good start because on his region, there were uh, some um, big uh, wine uh, maker. And uh, one guy said, I won't give you money, but I can give you some bottle of wine to sell. And with the money, maybe it can help. And the idea comes and we say, look, it's 2000, Dakar. We have 12 months to get prepared for this race. People at the end of the year, they will make some presents for their salary, presents for the family and the friends. And and we just decide to take this 2000 bottle from this winemaker. We find another guy in Bordeaux, uh, which have a sale for nearly nothing, uh, another 2000 bottle of Bordeaux. And we went in Chablis, on, uh, close to Nemo, and we also buy uh, 2,000 bottle of Chablis. It was, I had maybe 2,000 euros in my bank account at that time, but we spent all buying some boxes of 2,000 boxes each, and we had 6,000 bottles. We said we put three bottles on each box. We made a sticker. We put the sticker... Paris to Dakar tried to help Cyril Desprez and Michel Go. this was it uh, we said when the thousand box will be sold we will have 15 grand and that was tough to sell it because I was a good mechanic but I was a really bad for selling wine <laughs> definitely yeah.
0: Oh my God! So at the end of you made enough money to yeah to enter.
1: We just knocked on every single door on uh, our small city. We went to every single company. We said, "Don't buy chocolate for the your workers. Help us buy uh, boxes of wine." And my uncle and my aunt and my cousin and everybody from the family they had to help us. And we sold it. We sold it, and uh, and we get the money to pay the entry to pay the flight from Paris to Dakar because my first Dakar was starting in Dakar, crossing all Africa to finish in Cairo, in Egypt, close to the Pyramid. And yeah, we make it to the start and uh, it was just a crazy amount of work, a crazy time to prepare the bike because I prepare my bike, I prepare the bike of my friend. I remember all that work we put together and then was... Because of passion, because of motivation, because we saw that everything is possible, and we wanted to be on the on the start line.
0: How French is that? Funding your first French Dakar by selling wine. <laughs> there is yeah, no, yeah. nothing more French than that. Frenchie, Frenchie. Listen, guys, definitely what Cyril said. There is no limit to anything. Like even though you don't have any money or whatever, there is always a way to make things happen. And is the the best example of that. What? After like selling wine for a year and getting the bikes ready and you arrive in Dakar, what was your exact feeling at the first special when you were on your bike ready for your first Dakar?
1: It was just amazing because, um, uh, I was born in Paris and I went as a small guy looking of this, uh, Gaston Rayet, Hubert Royal, all these famous names, Cyril Neveu. I was looking about this big truck and I was six, seven, eight years old, and I saw all this caravan of vehicle going south on the one direction to Dakar, but it was so far, it was just uh, unbelievable, you know, to see and to remember all the image that I get in my head, and finally... In 2000, I was on the start line. I was ready for it. And I didn't know if I could finish. I didn't know uh, what will be the most difficult. I didn't know if uh, my bike is prepared well. And But I wanted only one thing. I wanted to see the pyramids. You know, this was my goal. I didn't even want to say I want to be top 20, top 40, top... You know, I was a pure amateur. I didn't have any assistant. We have a box, a metal box with all my food and my tools. And And when we arrive at night, we were fixing the bike by ourselves. And I remember exactly because we had one box of metal each by one meter, by 50 centimeter and, and 60 centimeter, just a, a box, not more. They were my a hammer. They were some screwdriver. They were my toothpaste. They were my spare socks. They were also uh, a tent, but we said, okay, we will try to put a bit more of uh, food and about some clothes. And we decided to take only one tent for each other. And the second mattress did not fit on the box because I was a mechanic and I wanted to put a lot of tools, a lot of spare parts. And it was crazy because it was uh, 19 days of race and we had one mattress for sleeping. We had two sleeping bags, but one mattress. And we said, look... Every two days, we change. But I remember exactly every single night that I, I didn't have the, the mattress, and it was the turn of Michelle, my friend. I was on the broken asphalt, I was on the rocks, and I just have a towel, which I put on the bottom of the tent, and I was sleeping on the towel inside my sleeping bag. I had the back destroyed, even after one week. And then I said... Whatever, you know, I want to see the pyramids. I want to see the end of this first Dakar. Did you see the pyramids? Yeah, of course. I saw, I saw it. And, and honestly, uh, my boss still, he was, he was really impressed because I finished uh, 16 overall. They were 180 bikes and I was the second on my class with a, a small engine, 400cc capacity. Top speed for me was uh, 145 when the top guy was 180. But I make it. Yeah, I make it. My friend make it also in 32, I think. And it was another
0: beginning for me. Of course, because I guess you realize that you are talented at this, obviously, because your first Dakar, you finish it and then 16th place. It's crazy. Were you aware of the risk of riding a motorcycle during Paris Dakar at that time? Uh, there were no fear.
1: I mean, it was uh, just uh, pure uh, adrenaline every single day. Uh, You know, doing uh, 600, 700 kilometers per day and enjoying every single kilometers every day. I didn't even know there were, it can be risky. I was not really physically prepared. I was a a skinny guy at that time. And then I never go went to the gym, but uh, it was the passion. I wanted to discover more. I wanted to discover countries and people. And, and we went from Senegal to Burkina Faso, to Mali, to Niger. We jump into Libya and then Tunisia and Egypt. I mean, for a guy which worked as a mechanic in the center of
0: Paris, it was just like 10 years of holiday on three weeks. It's great. Really, it's exactly what I say to my friend. Even if I don't do well at a contest, they are like, oh, you are right. Uh, sorry, you didn't do so well. And then I'm like, but guys, I'm in Japan with my friends, like yeah. traveling the yeah. world. Like this is beautiful, you know, <laughs> whatever. It's whatever it takes to get there. And uh, maybe for the guys who listen to that podcast and has no idea of what motorcycle and Dakar is, maybe walk us through how... Do you do a special with like the the road book and everything? There is no GPS, right? Especially in 2000.
1: No, I mean the GPS are just helpful for the organization to make sure that you are not lost in the desert. The GPS send a signal to Paris, uh, whatever Dakar in Africa, in in South America, or uh, like this year in in Saudi Arabia. It send a signal, and uh, the organization can follow us. How it goes for sure. We don't. We are not on asphalt. We are on the desert. We are going uh, from the start line, kilometer zero, which is writing on a, on a roll of paper, and it said for the next two kilometers, go on the main piste. It's bumpy, and the bearing is cap 162. And then you ride the two first kilometers like this, and you have another box at kilometer 2.1, which say leave the main piste in the direction of trees. And it's all designed on the, on a roll of paper and on the palm trees, watch out. There's a danger too, because there's a big hole. This is for another three kilometer. And then the next box you have kilometer 5.1 and it goes like this with a roll of paper. One part of the roll, the beginning is tape on an axle and the end of the roll is on another axle. And on the handlebar, you have a little switch which actionates a little engine. Just roll one axle and unroll the other axle. And as much as kilometer you are doing, you checked on your odometer and you have to ride a bike, but you have to know where you go, which direction, if it's dangerous or not. And this is only uh, with your finger making some impulse on this uh, little switch and rolling and rolling. And you goes for basically uh, 100 to 200 box like this. Some stages in Africa, the longest
0: one was 850 kilometers, for example. In one day?
1: In Yeah, in one day,
0: yeah. So it's crazy, like more than Paris, Marseille, but with a piece of paper and in the sand and doing like what? Yeah. 130 on moto?
1: Yeah, now, uh, yeah, I mean, 130 was the first Dakar. Uh, actually, I was, uh, I was lucky to go on a, on a professional team with uh, some much faster bike. Uh, the BMW in, that I have the chance to ride on 2001. Uh, it was around 200 Ks per hour. Uh, yeah, it was... In, a... in
0: in the sand, 200 yeah, Ks? Yeah, in the
1: sand, on the beach. This was different. But uh, one thing you have to realize is, like you said, Paris to Marseille, it's on the trails. You know, it's not uh, on the main road. It's on, not on the highway. It's forbidden uh, three months before the race to go and to try to have a look of the countries. This is the rules of the organization. That means you have to read the information. You have to find a good piece and a good direction, but you never know what you will be facing. Rocky, uh, twisty, sandy, big dunes, soft sand, and you have to adapt your uh, speed to don't crash your bike, to don't damage yourself, to don't get lost. It's a bit more than only turning the throttle and accelerating as much as you can. It's also Rally Red, it's riding as fast as you can without knowing the terrain and by reading some boxes on your roadbook. <laughs> well put
0: together. So yeah? like yeah, <laughs> 2001, you say you join a professional team and then 2005... That's the first year you, you won, uh, Dakar. What went into the preparation into winning Dakar? I had a, a trainer at home, a
1: physical trainer. I had a mechanic at that time, which was taking care of my bike. I can afford to pay a mechanic and which was uh, cleaning and preparing my training bike. This was a, a big step to have somebody, uh, like, like this. But um, that was after your 2000 good score. That someone said, "Hey, you, we want to help you." Yeah, I, I was uh, 2001. Uh, you know, I suffer only to find money for my first Dakar in 2000. And 2001, I already uh, been on a professional team, BMW. And actually, it was quite funny because there were four top riders international. They were looking for what we called water boy means they were looking for a rider which can repair the bike during the stage if one of these four top guys had a problem. Okay, It's not really pejorative. The name is Waterboy. It's like this. It was quite funny because the first day in Africa, uh, in Morocco, one guy crashed. The second day, one guy uh, hit. A bird into his uh, eyes and could not r- ride really properly. The f- fifth days, uh, another guy have a few accidents. And then uh, we arrive uh, in the middle of the race, which we called the rest day. We have one day off. It was uh, eight days racing, one day off and eight day racing. And a German boss of BMW uh, organized a briefing and he said, "Uh, look, we won't win the race. The top four guys, one was going back home. The third professional rider, they they were not really doing great. And they said, guys, we have to win special stage. And from that day, he said, there won't be any water boy. Now, Cyril, Jimmy, John, you have to go, you have to accelerate and, uh, you have to win stages. And then my role was to stay on the back of these guys and watch for them in case they have a problem uh, with their bike. And if I saw, and it happened, I saw one guy with a broken uh, tire one day and I had to stop, I had to take off my wheel to fit my wheel brand new on his bike and, I take his broken wheel and I manage to repair with a tube and and keep going slowly to the finish. This is what we call waterboy. But at that day, on the race day, they said no waterboy anymore. It means I was allowed to overtake my teammate and uh, it took me three days to win my first stage. And from 2000 to 2001 in one year, you know, I, I already win a stage and... Uh, And I really remember exactly what the boss said to the press at that night. He said, uh, you know, we allowed everybody to go in front and we allowed also Cyril to race for himself because he said, you cannot throw gold into the ocean. Wow. And it was something special for me, uh, that first
0: victory. Wow. So, like, you won your first special the second year you entered Dakar Yeah. and the first year professionally because exactly, the, like, yeah. it's yeah. like the first year doesn't even count because oh. you didn't have a good engine and yeah. it was, yeah. wow, yeah. this is amazing. And then so like 2005, the yeah. first year you win Dakar, were you like much prepared? Obviously not the water boy anymore. What was no. your mindset before the race in 2005? You know, we have to get back before the Dakar 2005. Uh, I enter uh, on
1: 2002 on another professional team with uh, KTM. You know, this is where I realized that uh, it's uh, the patient bring me here. The patient bring me to the Dakar. But also uh, I realized that it can be dangerous. Uh, we start a race in September 2004 uh, with four guys onto the team uh, we call KTM Gauloise. One top guy, which have been winning uh, three times the Dakar, his name was Richard Saint, a French guy, and he crashed bad onto this pharaoh rally in Egypt, and he died. It means we start the race together with four riders wearing the same clothes, the same sponsors, the same color, the same bike, and we became... Really, uh, friend, you know, there were really good friendship between all all the team, and having the feeling that when I I was back to my place to my home, we were only three, you know, one was missing, and at that time with uh, another top guy which called Fabrizio Meoni, an Italian rider really famous, which have been winning the Dakar three times also. We set a, a promise uh, between him and, and me. We were the two fastest guys in the team. And we said, look, for Richard, in a few months, we have to fight like hell for this Dakar 2005 because we need to bring the victory on the team. And then another big drama happened. Uh, we were on the 11th January 2005, uh, middle of the race. I was leading for the first time the Dakar. It was something huge five years after my first participation. And then we arrive in Mauritania. Uh, I was leading uh, the pack with uh, Fabrizio. And then uh, when somebody made a mistake of navigation, the guy behind, which have a clever decision and can pass, you know, this is the rules inside the desert. You cannot fight with your elbow between guys and rider, But if you find a way, you go and uh, it was a few kilometers after the the mid mid the special and i take the lead i find a good piece and fabrizio were a bit wrong and came back behind me and then basically uh, yeah this was the last time i i ever see him because uh, after a few kilometers he was a bit on my dust and and hit uh, a bump and uh, and crash and also died and it means it was tough in just uh, 3 months uh, i lost it uh, Two teammates. Two teammates, which uh, I realized that, uh, you know, I'm not like in ocean. I'm not sailing a boat. I'm not in the mountain taking a risk uh, into climbing Himalaya. But, you know, I'm facing the desert. I'm facing a, a natural element. And I get the respect for the the desert at that time. And I decided to keep going because I said I can't miss my promise. I was sad. I was 27 years old, you know, I was crying every morning on my my glasses, but I said, I have to push myself and I need this victory. And it was really great victory, not because it's the first big trophy I had at home, but because I respect the promise that I have made with my teammates, you know, and this was,
0: it can be a tough life, but, uh, yeah. it's crazy, but you made it happen for your friends and, and for yourself. And, and guys, we have uh Another guest that just came in. Hi. And my oh, other hi, teammate. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, help yourself. Woo-hoo! Now the team is complete. So happy to have you here. Thank you. For those uh, who live under a rock and who don't know who, uh, who this handsome guy is. Mike is a professional uh, adventurer. Yeah, explorer. Explorer. Gonna, yeah. Everything started in 1997, I think, and he was the first guy to complete a trip across the Amazonian River.
2: Yeah, I swam 7,000 kilometers. <laughs> I had nothing to do, so I woke up one morning and said, <laughs> why not swim 7,000 kilometers and live off nature? And so, um, yeah, I, I crossed the South American continent after spending some time uh, in Manaus with the Brazilian Special Forces that taught me how to survive. And when I knew how to survive, all I needed to know is how to swim. (laughs) And then, um, yeah, I climbed up to the source of the Amazon and Mount Miss Me at close to 6,000 meters and then followed the first drop of water all the way down for 7,000 kilometers to the Atlantic Ocean. Wow, this is insane. And then following like a bunch of uh,
0: insane trip, you you come right at the right time. We were uh, talking uh, about Cyril. First victory in Dakar in 2005, winning uh, for uh, Fabrizio Mioni and uh, and Carlos Sainte, his teammates and, and friend. And then it escalated quickly, like 2005, 7, 10, 12, 13, five time Dakar champion. And then um, moved to cars. Uh, and then uh, this year, you guys did uh, your first Dakar together. This is uh, insane. Like, how did that? happened well, what the idea came from that an explorer that did basically like the craziest shit that you could ever do on earth and the best motorcycle driver
2: that just went to a car
0: comes together in a car what happened
2: Yeah, i think we all do crazy shit uh, <laughs> I, uh we always look from our comfort zone into other sports and that's when you realize that wow well, um, you know there's a lot of crazy shit out there and um You know, um, I've followed Cyril for 20 years uh, because I was always interested in in motorsport, especially when it's off-road. And that was quite interesting. Um, I was on my way a couple of weeks ago to cross the North Pole from Alaska to Spitsbergen. It was most probably one of the most difficult trips of my life, um, walking in complete darkness for more than 90 days over the ice at minus 40 degrees and very close to the pole i got a message via satellite and the message just said you want to do the dakar with me <laughs> and it was uh, so all... uh <laughs> no way no this,
0: this
1: yeah yeah that... exactly no that's all uh, i can say the you know red bull uh, i've made a uh, a Red Bull off-road junior team uh, to try to find in the future the the fastest uh, driver on the planet, on Earth, for the US races, but also for the Dakar and, and all the races that you can find in Europe. The idea was nice for me to, after all these years, to try to give something to the young guys and uh, to give the experience to them. When they proposed me to be a coach, I said, "Yeah, I'll do it." And and uh, we have done uh, one test, two tests with them. Uh, really, uh, young kids from US, uh, twenty years, twenty two years, seventeen years old. And but unfortunately, one uh, the youngest one set uh, could not uh, make it to the Dakar two thousand twenty. And uh, and then they say, "Yeah, you have to take the car." I said, whoa, 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 I I have to do something different, something special because it was a small buggy and in a few minutes I said, if I I want to compete uh, with them as a coach, I need another coach. And and if I am a technical coach or a Dakar coach because I have a lot of knowledge, I have to find somebody which can coach them uh, how to push your limit, how to go... uh, as far as you can and there were only one word one name one guy
0: it's uh, the crazy one on my side Yeah, just to like give you some example of uh, what Mike did for other athletes Mike took the Indian cricket team that never won a world championship before spent some time with them and then they won the world cricket championship then he took the German soccer team before the, the World Cup in Brazil Went with them. I don't know what he did. He's going to explain us. And
2: then they better play, otherwise, I kill them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then, boom, like they won the, the World Cup in Brazil. What are you doing to these athletes?
2: You know, I studied sports psychology and sport injuries at university. So that's my job. But when I started doing extreme sport, it was just to be able to kind of find how far you can actually push yourself and what does the words commitment and willpower and endurance really mean? That's why I started with my expedition swimming down the Amazon and then Latitude Zero was unmotorized circumnavigation of the world along the equator. I knew that commitment meant that you're ready to dive, to do what you want to do, but that you're not doing it to die, you're doing it because that's what makes you feel alive. And playing football, you can lose or you can win, but you've got a next match. In what I do, I must win. So I've got no other option but winning. And if I don't believe in what I do, I'm not going to do it. And to bring that philosophy into a playing field and into the mind of these these superstar football players and, and Indian cricket players and South African rugby players Is quite easy if you can be an example to them. You know, it's always a little bit difficult to come from the world of of extreme sport like we all know and then go into the world of organized sport where they play for a certain amount of time on a certain field and you have 70,000 spectators. For us, what I do, there's no spectators. So your heart's got to be at the right place. The moment you leave is the moment that you hit the Rubicon, that point of no return. Then you're alone. Now you've got to count on your knowledge, your experience, your commitment, and never give up. I can't give up. If I give up, I die. Imagine you can get that into the mind of a football player. So, um, yeah, it worked quite well, I think.
0: Uh, yeah. Imagine if at the end of the, uh, a soccer game, the, the loser,
2: uh, die. Imagine, imagine how they will play. They will completely play, <laughs> yeah. play differently. And then it doesn't matter how much they get paid either. You know, so they're entertaining in a lot of crowds and they get paid good money for that. And. It's the world's biggest sport, but commitment is something really different.
0: Should that be a new rule of soccer? If you
2: don't win, you die.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Mike, Mike Horn has a new rule, please, for the World Cup uh, 2000. But,
1: but Matthias, tell me, he have explained you something uh, in two minutes. Do you feel stronger now? I feel
0: stronger now, I do. Yes, it's insane. and you will. It's I mean, insane.
1: when you saw uh, in his eyes, when he's explaining something like that, you feel stronger, you will be stronger. You will be stronger tonight and the rest of, of my the life. year because you will keep it you will keep this sentence and uh, definitely this is why also translating on what happened to us uh, it's it was a new project it was a, a junior team really fresh without a lot of experience but this guy have win six special under 12 and we win one it means it work this guy have the power to make it
2: work <laughs> definitely not really, so, it's like the guru you know like <laughs> wow. the smoke and because like. <laughs> so
0: that project, the red Bull junior uh, off road team, is to find a uh, new blood for uh rally raid, right because to give you a little perspective to the guys who listen, Rally raid is getting uh, a bit of a old guide sport, not to be like uh pejorative, but there is not a uh, up a newcomers really so the goal of that new project is to find the next dakar winner pretty much
1: the problem at the moment is uh, you need experience to face nature you need to have experience to give much more than you think you you can give and uh, getting mike and myself into the project they are winning months and years of experience this was the the idea which they found on an office in Austria in the Red Bull headquarters, but finally they realized that it worked. The experience we have been uh, uh, saying to Mitch and Blade and their co-driver. I mean, they just get it and goes directly um, to their blood and to their mind, to their heart. And uh,
2: you stop making the mistakes that beginners make, and you take his experience on uh, Cyril's experience of twenty years of Dakar, and you give it to them like on a platter. Then it's for the person that you give it to open his mind and to be able to take that and take ownership of that. And the moment you can take ownership of that, his experience becomes your experience. And the recipe of winning is there. He's giving his recipe that he had to learn and experience for 20 years to these young, young athletes. And... That's why the project really works because you can condense experience. And I was just there to tell the boys to stop crying and stop thinking you're tired. Just stand up, face, look the sun in the eyes and go. Because if you're tired, the competitors next to you are tired as well. So who's the strongest? And that's what we sometimes forget a lot in life is that when we do competitive sport, the person next to you has experienced the same as you have experienced. And we think we only tired, but they just as tired. And the moment that you realize that if you do a little bit more than they can do, then you will you'll be ahead. That's the moment when, when you really take a big step ahead. It's not when everybody feels well. Then we all move at the same pace. But it's in the bad weather. It's in those difficult moments that you can make the difference.
0: So it's all of your guys' experience from 20 years of Dakar and from 23 years of uh, doing the craziest expedition in the world that you give to these guys on the platter, basically like a a shortcut to success. Do you see it that way?
2: Of course it's a shortcut. It's um... It's a very big (laughs) shortcut. (laughs) You jump a generation of experience. So, you know, to, for them to come in and, and win six of the the 12 stages goes to show that really the plan that Red Bull had by creating this junior team and taking old guys like us, um, especially with, with Cyril being one of the top Dakar legends in a way, guiding them through every day, the rhythm that they must take, uh, the way they should drive the way that they should approach the last stage. the lo- You don't know it. You don't know it. You don't know what to do. And he tells you what to do and you follow that. And then, boom, magic happens. It's great.
0: Basically, so they have never done any Dakar before or kind of have never like been to uh, a sand dune before. And then like they, they win six specials. Yeah,
1: they did not get lost. We tell them, or I told them, this have been my choice for the tire. Follow it. The pressure of the tire, this is what we have found and this is the good one. Follow it. This is the adjustment, the best adjustment for this car, for this condition, for this desert in Saudi. You have to get it. And every single technical aspect, that did not get lost because they were following us afterward as you can imagine, and now you face him, when he's saying something, they listen. And they listen and they get it quickly and and there were no complaint. They were just waiting for the next advice of Mike, you know. And we just uh, make a perfect job altogether because uh, I was more about uh, this uh, race aspect and this technical aspect. And he was more into... Uh, guys, we have, uh, make this stage like this. You beat us. Tomorrow, uh, we're gonna go stronger, but you have also to go stronger. There were only one way, you know, when Mike were getting uh, a talk, uh, you know, uh, in between four eyes, they were there. They were listening. Eh? Oh, yeah. When, when Mike <laughs> is talking into your eyes, you're
0: listening. Definitely. And like when he grabs your leg, like really strongly, like you, you, you're definitely listening. So like, for you, Cyril, after winning uh, five Dakar on a motorcycle, after on, uh, being on a podium with the, the car, a new mic with all these uh, successful expeditions, do you enjoy your own victory better or like the victory of someone you taught?
2: Hugh, that's a difficult... I'm, I'm a competitor. And, and you know, when, when we gave our engine to the young guys to participate, which was Cyril's idea, you mm. know, first of all, I'm a competitor and I want to race. And yeah, I was a little bit disappointed. But then you get the enjoyment of them winning the race and the specials. And that's what life is all about. You know, we become old and we've got to make space for the younger guys. And that is important in life, you know, to be able to not see them as competitors, but to see them as just an extension of your thoughts, an extension of who you are. I always find the good in people. I don't have to look at the stuff that's negative because it's not building me. It's breaking me down. And and if you can find the good in people, you grow even if you're not the one actually winning it. I never scored a goal in the World Cup or hit a run with a cricket bat. But I had as much enjoyment when Germany won, when Indian cricket team won, when South African rugby team won, when whatever team I coached and the Red Bull team as well, I got so much enjoyment that at the end of the day, that enjoyment is a shared moment. When I reach the North Pole or I climb to a summit of a mountain, it's a unique moment. And if it's it's not as shared as with a team. And those moments are quickly forgotten. So, you know, we keep on doing our expeditions. Um, you know, when I reach the North Pole and the South Pole and whatever, you're alone. There's nobody saying well done or... You alone. And they say
0: it's lonely uh, at the top and uh, being from a sport that's so uh, personal too, you know, BMX flatland. and uh, I mean I won a bunch of world titles or whatever but at the end of the day you're so lonely on that podium. But when for me, when I share my experience to the new up and coming kids and hopefully they're going to beat me in the next two years, this is what makes me alive. This is what my spot is all yeah, about. I, uh,
2: definitely, you know, you know, I'm a big mate of old Tony Hawk and and stuff like that. And for him, you know, it's, it's an example of sharing his skateboard knowledge with the younger generation, his own kids and stuff like that. And he's, he's a perfect example. You're a perfect example. Cyril's a perfect example, you know, in the world of what I do in exploration, because it's a hard life to live and it takes a lot of commitment and takes you away from home for, For very long periods of time, you know, I've slept 32 days in my own bed in five years. Wait, what? 32 days, yeah, not one after the other, but in five years, I only spent 32 days at home that's wow. less yeah yeah so so this is it's crazy house, it's, yeah it's
1: house is is hers is the, is the world
0: that's a crazy fact and i thought like i was traveling a lot <laughs> yeah you know and, and and
2: well obviously we travel on foot and, and one expedition i did circumnavigating the world above the arctic circle uh, i had to walk uh, or ski across siberia canada alaska greenland it took 808 days. That's two years and three months you ski alone around the world and obviously people ask you what you see because it's white and it's cold And but you see life. You see life but you're not looking only through your eyes. You're looking through your heart and you're looking through each muscle in your body and you you can taste life. You can smell life. You can see life and and that's what I love doing. I like being alive because one life only... As 30,000 days to the age of 82, we can't waste one of those days. We have to use those days very, very selectively and carefully and do as much as we can do with those little 30,000 days we have to live. Guys like that, us most probably will not live those 30,000 days, but you know, we've got a choice of life. You can choose a life where you live close to the cliff. They say that life is a short life, uh, but a broad life where you do a lot of things. And the moment you make the mistake, you're going to fall off the cliff and die. Or you can walk further away from the cliff. You know, that life is a narrow life and a long life. But that life's got no view. I want the view from the cliff. So I don't mind falling. And I'm not going to fall. So those choices in life we have to make. No matter what life you choose, all the lives are good. But when you decide to live your life, live it to the fullest of your capabilities. My mind's fucking blown. Like,
0: I would honestly remember what you just said all my life. And so you guys should yeah. do it too. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, you will use it. I mean, uh, if I was quite
1: successful, let's say, uh, on my bike by my own uh, during uh, 15 years, 15 Dakar participation, you know, I have a chance to read the book of Mike's, the books, and I have a chance once to meet him and to party with him also heavily. <laughs> that we do as well. Like, yeah. <laughs> like your last,
2: his party should be like your lost party. <laughs> but,
1: but it's not easy to say uh, how much part of the trophy uh, is my, mine, how, how much part of the trophies uh belong to the team to the mechanic, but uh, there's for sure one part of each trophy I have at home which belong to Mike because he give you this mind and and this power to fight like hell when you are doing what you are loving to do. There's a few pieces of trophy. Maybe I have one totally. If I put uh, all the small pieces of trophy which uh, belong to Mike... Uh, there is
2: a full trophy? Yeah, yeah. I think as well, you know, it's in our world where you have to spend hours training and preparing and and, and repeating and, and, and you fall and you stand up and you fall and you stand up. And then at the end of the day, you know, you kind of think, where am I actually going with all of this? And, and that's at that moment that you're actually doing the right thing, that moment that you question yourself because that means you've done the hard yards, you've worked hard, the input's been amazing but maybe the output's not there yet and you've got to really in life, if you can start loving the things that you hate doing, if you can love the things that you don't want to do, that's the moment that you can achieve, that's the moment that your life becomes broader, your life becomes not only liking the things that you like doing and doing them, but liking everything that you do, the good and the bad. Then you're walking down the right road. And that's where I love living. Love living when I start liking what I hate
0: doing. Isn't it like a, a relationship? With a, a girl when you have to embrace the whole, uh, the whole picture, you know? No, love and
2: hate's very close to each other. I unfortunately lost my wife that I was married 25 years to, with cancer. As an athlete, she gave me the freedom to do what I did. And it's that relationship that you have with somebody that you really care for. And then you leave them. That moment you come back, you hate that moment you leave them. And the moment when you come back into their arms, that's the moment of love again. Those are the two extremes that we deal with every day of our life. And if you can deal with those extremes, then life will be a breeze. It will be easy.
0: Man, this is like the the type of advice you give to these kids, Blade, Hildebrand, Mitch uh, Guthrie, Seth, uh, Quintero, these guys that are uh, a part of the Red Bull uh, off-road junior team. Do you think they'll be uh, able to win Dakar? Is the, first of all, is the program continuing uh, this year? Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, it's a program of three years. Uh, they will make a few races after Dakar, some U.S. races, some Baja in Mexico, in Vegas to Reno. They will do uh, some race also in Morocco, in, in Abu Dhabi. But uh, yeah, it's a long program. I mean, you know Red Bull uh, quite well. Uh, as much as i I know them also, and then uh, they have an idea. it's just not a stupid idea. it's a clever idea and and they will make everything possible to be successful and uh, At the moment, we are just debriefing a bit technically about the vehicle and stories like Mike uh, and what he's saying right now in a in a short period in a few minutes. We have spent seventeen days with these kids. Can you imagine the amount of tips? from Mike the amounts of knowledge technically are they get from me I mean
0: they will be quickly very successful I'm pretty sure about it yeah it's I mean it's insane I've only spent 24 hours with you uh, Mike and with you Cyril and that has uh, made so much impact already on me and uh, I feel like you could be you guys could be like so helpful to uh, a lot of different athletes is it a reconversion something you're thinking about for the for the future
2: well, definitely at my age, I'm, I must think of other shit to do, you know, and uh, I think Cyril's still got an amazing career as a driver and, and he's got the experience. I would like to, you know, help him a little bit as well um, by being his co-pilot, although I've got no value in the car. You know, I'm there to cheer him on. And in all sports, you know, we have this fear of losing. We have this fear of growing old. We have... um the fear of, as we grow up, not to be the best anymore. The fear of losing becomes quite dominant, but the moment that you can still have that will to win, you know, that strong, embedded will, the will that we have all at a young age to win, when the will to win becomes much bigger than the fear to lose, then you're going to still win. And at this stage, I still feel that. I'm not afraid of losing and the world to win is bigger than my fear that I have of losing. I'm going to still be out there. And I think with him as well, you know, you can see his his eyes, uh, you know, uh, uh, shine up and, and you can see life coming back because Cyril still has this will to win. He's not afraid of losing because he's proved already that he can win. And that moment that will to win overpowers that fear to lose shit there's trouble coming you know then you create that determination like I told uh, you know Cyril and the boys in the team um, you know in life it's not all about motivation I'm not motivated at minus 40 to get out of the tent and <laughs> to pull a sled that weighs nearly 200 kgs and and freeze my fingers and my toes and you can't even have a piss outside, you know, uh, so your life completely changes and becomes uncomfortable. I'm not motivated to do that, but I'm disciplined. In life, if you have discipline, then there's a lot that you can do because I get up five minutes before the alarm goes inside my tent uh, on the Arctic Ocean every day. And that five minutes accumulated over three months made me, made the expedition successful because I arrived on the boat with 200 grams of food after a period of nearly four months. So that discipline that we need in life is more important than just motivation. Motivation is something that we all say, think positive, but think positive doesn't help you anyway. Think positive doesn't change your life. You've got to make a change. And that change is you can make when you're disciplined.
0: Yeah, it's, again, it's the the relation between Discipline and motivation and, uh, like love and hate, which, and they are really and close to each other. The contrast
2: of life. You can only live life if you can live with the contrast of it.
0: Exactly. You know, coming back from the junior
1: team or any young athletes, we are talking about contrast and, uh, we prove that Mike is, a, is an explorer, but he's, is an action sport and I'm a motorsport. What about the contrast? You know, we fit together on the car. Uh, we work uh, really perfectly inside a team. And, and this brings us to, uh, a lot of possibilities and in the clear, clear future to say, uh, how can we never put, uh, uh, 10 young, uh, athletes from Red Bull? coming from snowboard, coming from motocross, coming from BMX flat or climbing and Formula One, bringing all these kids together and what we are giving to the two U.S. kids, we could make the contrast much bigger and mixing uh, all these guys to give all their experience of racing, of preparation. There's a lot of
0: stories uh, uh, which uh, we are thinking at the moment. and uh... My uh, favorite day of the year, it's, it's definitely not my birthday, it's the Red Bull Athlete Summit in France that uh, Red Bull France organizes. It's basically a day where they invite all their athletes, which is 40, from all different disciplines. So we have Molar Sport with you, we have Surfing with Justin Dupont, we have uh, FMX with Tom Pagès, we have BMX, we have Skateboard. And for three days we get to spend three days together doing workshop doing I don't know like uh, we went skydiving on the on this wind chattel, tunnel yeah. we did some karting we did a, a bunch of different stuff but most importantly we shared we shared tips we shared experiences and at the end of these three days I'm so motivated and these three days makes a lot of impact during my whole year and I guess the idea to open that concept to a worldwide Red Bull summit would be absolutely incredible.
2: Yeah, you know, we we, we have to understand that, you know, we have to build bridges today. And bridges are are easier to build than walls. Because when you have a bridge, you can have two-way communication. And that is quite important. We never used to really, to use experiences of other sports because we thought it was so specific, so we kept it in closed circles. But now these circles must open up and we must share experiences with each other, because that's where we all grow together and we can become better in that manner. And that is why, for me, it's important not only to ski to the North Pole, but to climb mountains, to cross the Amazon jungle, to sail 15 times around the world, to do all the different elements that I've done as a extreme athlete for nearly 28 years to taste each different element. And what I've noticed was in all these different elements, you're still the same person. You still need the same courage. You still need the same determination. You still need the same focus. And that's why I believe that it doesn't matter what you do in life. We all resemble each other. We can look into the mirror and we can see who we are. But I can see part of you. I can see part of Cyril in me. I can see you will see part of me in you. And Cyril will see part of me in him. And that's the great thing about the Red Bull team. They have amazing individuals. But to be able to find what you're still missing in your makeup from other athletes will make you a better person.
0: Of course. And I think that's kind of one of the goal of that podcast and that vlog is to find Kind of a common pattern that every athletes have in common, and then open their eyes on how rewarding for them it would be to open their eyes and heart to uh, other disciplines, to other like uh, communities, to other like country. Because I feel like I've learned the most when I travel and when I I talk to someone I'm not supposed to talk to because it's so different from me, but this person brings me so much more experience than if I was just another day of of training or whatever. And I feel like sharing is the future of being a professional, successful athlete.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I can tell you all these athletes summit, all these athletes, Red Bull around the world, we are proud to be part of the same family. We are proud to wear the same cap, to drink the same drink and and to share the trophy together and to share the experience together. We are proud, you know, to be part of this family. And And uh, let's uh, think about the the youngest generation to don't lose this proudness of this
0: huge team all around the world. Let's make a promise today, boys, and say that well, you guys going to make this project happen, of bringing like ten Red Bull athletes or hundred uh Red Bull athletes or whatever because you kind of did that project with the Atlantic project or on your boat. Panjera. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I did I did I did an amazing project with young people around the world. So I took two kids, young explorers, what we call them, or young adults from the six different continents. So I North America, South America, Europe, uh, Africa, Asia, Australasia, where I built a boat to take these guys around the world and do adventure. And, uh, you know, you put from all different nationalities, you mix them on the boat and then all of a sudden you see, but we only one. We just live geographically in a different place. But we can feed off each other. And the moment you can feed off each other's energy is the moment that basically the impossible becomes possible because you'll be supported. And if you surround yourself by like-minded people and by knowledgeable individuals that do it with for the right reason, not only to sometimes some situations are not as comfortable because the people that you work with are not doing it for the right reason for the passion behind it, but just want more followers or more acknowledgement or whatever. That's not the right way to go, but to have the right hearted people, then shit, you know, shit happens. And I was, uh, I was very fortunate to, for three, four, four years, take these young people around the world. And now I finished with that project and why not do the next project? And that's what, you know, I think guys like all of us can make happen very quickly because it's just kind of making a phone call and saying, listen, guys, this is what we're doing. And then things happen.
0: We're all going on a trip and sharing experience. And I would like, that would be benefiting for so many athletes and I feel like we live in an era where a lot of people are like ego tripped and self-centered because of, of course, social media. Of course, of course. And uh and me the first not the shit I post on social media is super like uh Egos on thread and uh, and because I, I play the game of social media, people want to see like stuff of me, so I put stuff of me, but it 's like stuff of me I put every day, and this is why I started to do this project it 's just like to put the highlight on of some on some people I like and not only me 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 again, and I feel like a project like this would be like so good to kind of get out of this instagram yeah. social media bullshit or
1: whatever one of everything I learned from Mike is uh it did not finish an adventure. It just uh, start a new one. I don't know how if we can promise that we will do something, but we will try, uh, and we will make our best to make it happen.
0: But please,
2: if you do it, have me a part of it. <laughs> nah, you know, what, what, what is quite interesting just on this topic, you know, it's, we all need heroes in our life. We all need icons. And, and my father was an icon to me, a, a hero, because he was a South African rugby player. And as a kid, I was walking down the street with him and people would stop and say, hey, wow, you know, you played so well. And that made me feel proud of him. And imagine we all have that philosophy that we can be proud. I love walking down the street in the Dakar with, uh, with Cyril and the people come and say, wow, you know, you, what you did on a bike was amazing. And what you do on your BMX is the shit. That builds me as a person because I know you and I know Cyril. And my father, when he played his last rugby match and we walked into the changing room, all the other players came to him and they said, wow, what an amazing career. And as a young boy, I listened to what they had to say. And I felt proud of him. And when everybody moved away, I told my father, you know, I want to be like you. And my father looked at me and he said, no, you can't be like me. And in a way, it disappointed me that moment because I wanted to be like him. And then five seconds later, he looked at me and he said, you know, you are already much bigger than I was and will ever be. He said, you cannot be me, you are who you are, and you will be bigger. At that moment when you believe that. Your dad, you believe your dad. You believe your dad, you believe your hero, you believe your your icon, things become possible. Every morning he went running, every morning. Six o'clock from the age of eight years old, every morning I was awake and I went running with him. He never ran any slower. He was just running to train and I had to run faster to keep up with him. Every day I put a mark on the road where I could not keep up with him and every day I went running from 8 years old I tried to beat that mark. When I was 13 years old I could stay with him for the whole run. He asked me a question that day in in the changing room when he played his last match and he said, "Why do you think I go running every day?" And I looked at him, I said, You go running because you want to be the best person that you can be. You want to be better than the competitors. You want to add value to your team. I knew why we needed to train. And he looked at me and said, you know, that's only half the truth. I go running because you are awake. You inspire me to wake up every morning because I know you want to break your the record that you set yesterday. And If I really inspired my father or not, doesn't really matter. But yet again, I believed in it. I believed that I was inspiring my hero. And that's the attitude that we all should have in life. Imagine the inspiration that we give to others and the inspiration we receive from others. It's not only us, the big heroes. No, the heroes are everywhere around us, surrounding us, waking up every morning to go to work, They do their own 8,000-meter peak every day like we do, and that's inspirational. So inspiration is a word that you can find everywhere. You inspire me. I inspire Cyril. Cyril inspires 100,000 other people. And I think the moment you understand that in life is the moment that you just know that there's no limits of inspiration.
0: It's unbelievable and it's something that, uh, every athlete needs to hear to be bigger. So let's hope to make that project happen and, uh, and we'll uh, work on it. Yeah. <laughs> definitely on Red Bull could be, a, a really good, uh, pattern to make this project there, happen. For me, honestly, uh, I've been
1: on, on a few brands of car and bike and sponsors, but uh, only one can make it, you know, they inspire me. Red Bull inspire me and, uh, uh, Red Bull inspire a lot of uh, young kids to get one day the chance to have this cap, you know, to be proud of this family and uh, hope we can do some uh, more years together.
0: That would be amazing to watch. Well, boys, thanks for the inspirational words and I'm, I'm so inspired. I, I hope you guys too. And uh, yeah, see you on the next podcast now. We go, wait, let's go party now.
2: Let's go <laughs> party. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, guys. Thanks a so million.
0: Thank you guys so much for your attention and listening to my podcast, Decoding Athletes with Red Bull. Some of my personal takeaway from the conversation with Cyril and Mike are that their training is a shortcut to success for the young racers or young athletes. Like, basically, if you stay a couple of weeks with them, it's going to be like a shortcut to your success. Their experience is going to make you a better athlete. And hopefully that podcast helps you out with that. I also really enjoyed the part when uh, Mike said that you can live your life to the fullest when you can love the things you don't like I thought that was a really powerful thought and uh, I'm going to try to adapt it to my own lifestyle you start to live when you love the things you don't like let me know what your personal takes away from the interview share it with the hashtag decodingathletes on instagram and don't forget to tag me so I can see it we also filmed a podcast and a vlog with Mike and Cyril for my youtube channel it was a crazy day in Chamonix and you don't want to miss that one out you can find the link down below in the show notes. Tune in next time when I meet with BMX legend and one of my best friend Terry Adams. Terry is one of the most successful BMX riders ever. He's won Nora Cups, he's won X-Games Gold Medal, he's been riding for over 30 years, he's from Hammond, Louisiana, and is widely regarded as the ambassador for Flatland. His way of working is crazy. Harry is one of my favorite part of the interview with Terry. The next episode with Stereo will drop next week, Wednesday at 6 p.m. CT. Don't miss that one out and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favorite podcast app. Thank you guys so much for listening to Decoding Athletes today. Hope you got inspired. See you next week. Decoding Athletes with Mathias Dondois is a production of Maniac Studios for Red Bull Media House.